Morning, Calvary. My name's Thomas. If we haven't met yet, I get to be on staff here at the Erie campus, and it's my joy to be able to open up the scriptures each week and be able to teach what God has to say in his word. And I think about that comment of we get to be the church, that God is building a community of people that are devoted and oriented around his son, Jesus Christ. He calls them messengers and ministers of his work. It's reconciliation that we get to actually go out in all the spheres in which we live and be the mercy of God, the church, to those that we work with, live with, those we play with, and be able to express the mercy of God to them. And I'll tell you, in the last 24 hours, I would say the world desperately needs the people of the church to remember that it's not just simply the time to gather inside walls, but to be scattered outside in the community with that message and the ministry of reconciliation and repair. So before we begin in our text, it's going to orient us around these themes. Let's pray. Let's pray for our countrymen, our friends that have been impacted in the last 24 hours with horrific shootings and events. Let's pray for ourselves that God would minister to us as we gather in this space, build us up, encourage us, equip us for the work of the ministry that will be this week. Let's pray. Lord, there are so many events every single day that grieve our hearts. And the closer they get to our home, uh, the more real they just seem. Lord, honestly, it, it almost seems like we've been desensitized to these things. But Lord, we come before you and ask on behalf of those who are grieving this morning, those who are afraid today, that you would be God. Lord, would you do the thing that only you can do and, and minister to their hearts? Would you bring a community around each person? Would you bring your saints around those who are just lost for words? And would you comfort their hearts? Lord God, we are thankful that you are a God of all comfort. And with the comfort that we receive, the comfort that has built us up, may we go now and comfort others. And so Lord, would you use this morning to build us up, to equip us for the work of the ministry that we will soon be stepping into as we scatter from this place. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, this week and next week are our expos, opportunities to get connected in serving and getting connected in community. If you're not part of the life at Calvary, you can also indicate on your Connect card, I want to be in the know of all the things that are happening at Calvary, and you'll receive that monthly newsletter with a word from one of the pastors on staff, as well as the events that are coming up. If you read my newsletter that I sent out this week, it was talking about this series that we're in of, of training for the win, training for that we'd be conformed to the likeness of Christ. And this emphasis is training in community. That if you read the words that I shared, it's just briefly saying that you shouldn't train alone. The Christian life wasn't designed for you to run alone. No one trains alone who's training for the win. We train within a community of people. Because we need each other to uphold us when we're struggling, and we need to come alongside those who are struggling as well. And so we train together. And this Sunday, we want to focus on what does a community look like that serves together? And next week, we're going to look at what does it look like for a community of people to belong together? So to help us get around this idea of service, I actually want to go to a familiar passage. 
A familiar passage that as soon as you know the text I'm going to open up, you're going to be like, oh, I heard this story so many times. And I know it's familiar to many, but don't let the familiarity of the story allow you to be disengaged with what God wants to say to you today. So open up your Bible to the Gospel of Luke, to chapter 10, verse 25, and there you'll find a familiar story of the Good Samaritan. Here in Luke chapter 10, Luke is the gospel that is written to uh, Gentile Christians, probably who are rather wealthy and affluent in their culture, that have come to know Christ. And Luke, one of the gospel writers who's writing about the life of Christ, to allow people to know for certain that the things that they've heard are true, is also trying to help these wealthy, affluent Gentile Christians in their Roman culture know what it looks like to care for those in their community to use their time and their talent and their resources in such a way to care for the vulnerable within their church community and also within their community at large. And that's where we find this story of the Good Samaritan. And we're going to read it verse by verse and take a look at what is it that God has to say to us through this story. Because I think we find ourselves in this story. And if you don't know it, we're just going to read it at one verse at a time. Verse 25, here's the scene. And behold, a lawyer... That's somebody who knows the law, okay? And not the, not the civil law necessarily, but the law of God. This is the first five books, the Torah, Levitical, Mosaic, covenantal law of God with his people. A lawyer, an expert in the Torah, stood up to put Jesus, that's him, to the test, saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now remember, This is happening in a Jewish context. This is a Jewish man addressing Jesus who is Jewish. And this man is asking Jesus a question that's very Jewish. How is it that I live in such a way to inherit the life or the age to come? We know there's an age to come in which God is going to reconcile all things back to himself. We know that there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. And that those who love God and those who are associated with God will inherit the age to come. How do I live now? to be a person of the kingdom that would then allow me to experience the age to come? That's the question this lawyer, the expert in the law is asking. Jesus said to him, verse 26, what is written in the law and how do you read it? Now, I love this because Jesus doesn't say, well, guess what? There's a new secret out there and I have direct revelation from God that nobody knows about and I'm gonna tell you the secret to being saved. No, he says, what does the law say? I don't have something new for you. You've read it. You probably know the answer. And he directs him back to the scriptures. And if we were to ask that question today and someone were to come to you and say, I've got the secret. Nobody knows. Don't listen to them. Listen to a teacher that tells you God has made it known, has made it plain. He has written it down. It hasn't changed. Come look once again where God has written. So how do you read the law? Now that's a Jewish question for this man during the first century. When he says to this man, how do you read the law? He's asking a question of how do you order the law? There were, there were two major camps in first century Judaism. One was from the house of Hillel and one was from the house of Shammai. Hillel and Shammai were rabbis just before Jesus' day, still living at the time in which talked about rabbinic living of the law. And for most of the part, the two households, the two streams of Judaism agreed on how to live. But there were a few disagreements of how you would order the commandments 
or what God would say about certain things. One pertaining to how you would weigh the commandments, meaning this. If two commandments that God asks his people to do conflict with each other, which one has a greater weight to it so that you know in the conflict of these two commandments, you would first follow this one rather than that one. So for example, it is commanded that you would keep the Sabbath holy. And yet it's commanded that you would do mercy and care for those who are in need. So what do you do when someone has a great need, needs to be extended mercy, but it's on the Sabbath and you're not supposed to do any work? Of which commandment is weightier so that you know, ah, even if someone needs mercy, I should do that, though it's the Sabbath. How do you order or weigh the commandments? That's what Jesus is asking. Okay, you know the law. That's where salvation is found. How do you order, how do you weigh the Torah? And the man said this, verse 27. And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. So the first is this, love God with your total, complete, whole being. That's where it begins. No one gets to belong to the family of God who doesn't reorient their life, turn, repent, and say, God, you're first and foremost, the greatest affection of my life, period. Both Hillel and Shammai agreed on the first commandment. What they disagreed on was the second. Rabbi Shammai said the second commandment is, be holy, for I am holy. Rabbi Hillel and the house of Hillel taught the second commandment, the second weightiest commandment, is to love your neighbor as yourself. Now that wasn't unique to the household of Hillel. In fact, that was what was written in Deuteronomy chapter 6. That's what's written in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. It was what Jesus taught his disciples. The whole Torah can be summed up in these two laws. Love God with your whole, total, complete being and love your neighbor as yourself. And so this expert in the law, looking back at the law, saying, asking or having to answer Jesus' question of how do you weigh the commandment, says, love God with everything and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says about his interpretation, verse 28, And he said to him, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. You got it! Like, you you nailed it! You asked me what I need to do to inherit the eternal life, be people of the kingdom, orient yourself around God, and love your neighbor as yourself. Nailed it. You got it. Congratulations. And you'd think the conversation would be over. But it's not. It's not with people who are self-righteous and who want to justify themselves and the life they're living before God. And so we pick up in verse 29. But he desiring to justify himself, to show that he's really worthy of entering eternal life, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Now this was another question that both streams were trying to answer. How far does this neighbor love go? When you go to Leviticus 19, it says all these things not to do. You know, don't covet your neighbor. Don't bear false witness against your neighbor. Don't commit adultery with your neighbor's wife. Don't glean your harvest fields all over the edge and then go back and pick up all the scraps. Leave that for your neighbor and the sojourner. But here's the question. How how far does that kind of mercy and kindness go? Who is my neighbor? And so some very conservative, restrictive, Zach said, okay, well, your neighbor is only those who are right-standing, committed, clean Jews, period. You could be a Jew, but you're not clean, you're not right with God. Neighbor love does not extend to you. And neighbor love certainly wouldn't extend to a foreigner. 
a Roman or a Gentile? How far does neighbor love go? Now, it doesn't say this in the text, but when the man asks, who is my neighbor? I kind of insert my own heart there and say, why does he ask who is my neighbor? Is it so that he can be certain and make sure that he knows who he is to go and love? Not if he's like me. If he's like me, I want to know who my neighbor is so I can be certain who I can pass by. Because I ain't got time for everybody. I want to I leave my house. I want to come into my house. I mean, how far does neighbor love go? Is it just the houses on your right and left? What if your fence touches them in the back? This is why you should live on a corner with no neighbors in the back. Now you're down to one neighbor, okay? I can love one neighbor. Who is my neighbor, he asks. And if he's like me, it's not to find out who he should be loving. It's so he knows for certain who he can walk by. There's this question, how do I inherit the kingdom that's coming, Lord? How do I live in your eternal kingdom, free from death and sin forever? Well, how do you read the scriptures? It's the same answer. Go back to the scriptures. Well, I read it this way. Love God, orient your whole life around God, and love your neighbors yourself. That's it. Go and do it. But who's my neighbor? Who's my neighbor? And Jesus answers this question with a parable, with this familiar story. Now, the Good Samaritan that we're familiar with oftentimes just gets reduced to really good Christian roadside assistance. Like, you see someone broken down, you see someone who needs a tire change, you're just like State Farm, like you're just a good neighbor, and you're there. That's not all what Jesus is doing. In fact, what Jesus does to this man is crazy. This man is so confident of how he's lived, and Jesus uses an example that's like a left hook coming out of nowhere. And it levels the man. I mean, knocks him off his proverbial high horse. And he doesn't even have words to pick himself up at the end. Check this out. Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. So that's about 14 to 17 miles away. Jerusalem at the top of the hill coming down to Jericho. There's this famous road that you can walk today. But it was known as a treacherous path that people would often be hijacked and thieves would come. He was going down this road from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers. That would be known of the day. Oh, here he goes again. Someone has been beat up. He was stripped, they beat him, and they departed, leaving him for half dead. So here's a man on the side of the road who's naked, unidentifiable, perhaps dead, not certain. The way you would identify who's who in the first century is based on their their garments, how, what they wore, or their accent, how they spoke. Neither are identifiable. Here's just a human being. Human being. You don't know if they're in the right political party. They don't know if you belong to your community. You don't know if you're Jewish. You don't know if you're clean. You just see a human being. You don't know how they vote. You don't know their affiliation. There's just a human being laying there. Verse 33. Sorry, one. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road. Now, why is the priest going down this road? Is because the temple's in Jerusalem, and many priests have homes in Jericho. And so, after doing their temple service in Jerusalem for a few weeks, they are returning home, and they're returning home with a portion of many of the sacrifices and provisions because they weren't paid to be a priest. 
They were given portions of oil and wine and meats and grain offerings. And so they're returning home to their family with all of their provisions for their family. So that they can now live back in Jericho for a few weeks before they return back to Jerusalem to continue their work at the temple. So here comes the priest. And when he saw him, this will be key. It's not like he missed him. It wasn't like, what, what, what person are you talking about? No, he saw him. When he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite. Now this is another person who helps with the ceremonial pieces of the temple. So you go from priest, it's kind of like, that's top of the food chain. To Levite, okay. Now, now if the, if the priest didn't do it, maybe the Levite will. And similarly, he's probably returning home. Likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place, and what? He sees him too. Saw him. He didn't miss it. Saw him. He passed by on the other side. Like, I, I don't have time for that. I'm going to head over here. Now, there's different opinions of why this exists this way. Some would say there's no excuse. They're just cold-hearted, and they pass by the other side. Some would say, if these are Levitical priests and Levites, they might know the law. And part of the law of cleanliness is that you cannot come in contact with a dead body. Some would actually have taught during that day that your shadow can't even cross a dead body lest you become unclean. And then you have to return back to the temple. So all the food and provisions you have for your family, well, you, you can't give them. You have to go back up to the temple and for certain days and weeks to become clean again. And so perhaps they're just choosing holiness, like I'm not going to be penetrated by death. So I can go and be with my family. But either way, whether they're totally free and just cold-hearted or because they're trying to keep the Mosaic law of loving God and then be holy, they pass by on the other side. And then here's where the left hook comes. If it starts with priest and goes to Levi and and it's kind of like the food chain, who's the next person? It's probably just a a stable, God-fearing Jew. So that's probably, okay, if it's it's priest, it's Levite, now it's going to be a common Jew passing by, and Jesus rocks the man when he says this. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. So he sees him too, with a different response. He has compassion. Now, some of us in the room totally know what a Samaritan is. Others don't, and that's okay. So a Samaritan is probably the most hated person of a Jewish person. Not, not only do they hate Rome, not only do they hate the Greeks because they're occupying them, but they hate Samaritans because they've betrayed them, they feel like. And they've intermarried at a time of the exile, this is a long time ago, and they've taken wives they shouldn't have taken or taken husbands they shouldn't have taken, and they've intermarried, and they've, so to speak, polluted the bloodline. And Jews hate them. They won't even walk through Samaria. They'll, they'll walk around even though it takes extra time, because they hate him so much. And Jesus is about to make him the example of the story to follow. Let's finish the story, and then we'll come back to the Samaritan. He went to him and bound up his wounds. He bound up his wounds with his own belongings, his own garments, pouring on oil and wine for medicinal purposes, his own oil, his own wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn, And he took care of him. I don't know how long he took care of him for, but he invested himself in the man. Verse 35. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Two denarii is probably two days wages. So he gives more of his resources to the innkeeper. And he gave him the innkeeper saying, take care of him. And whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. 
Like I'm coming back to check in on this guy. I don't even know his name. Not only am I going to care for him now, but I want to make sure he's okay. And then I'll come back. I'm going to invest part of my future as an inconvenience to me to care for this man. And I will pay you back whatever is owed. Verse 36, here comes the question. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Jesus doesn't even answer the first question. of like, what, what do I have to do? Well, you should lo- love God and love others. You recognize that from the scriptures. Good. Well, oh, well, I'm seeking to justify myself. I'm a good neighbor. Well, I know you haven't done all these things. Like, I've never wronged my neighbor. I've never cheated on my neighbor. I've never lied to my neighbor. I've never, you know, hurt my neighbor. Those are all the thou shalt nots. That's great. But there's something about loving God that has activating love too. You can't just be a good Christian saying, okay, I've never cheated my neighbor, I've never lied to my neighbor, I've never hurt my neighbor, and that's what some of us do. Like, I'm a good person. I haven't done any of those bad things to anybody. Surely I'm good. But there's something about loving God that has active love in it too. Otherwise, you could just simply be a good Christian and open your garage door, leave, open your garage door, come back, sit on your couch, never talk to anyone. You'd be a great Christian. Just binge Netflix all day. Be a good Christian. But there's something about active neighbor love that's getting after this man. And so Jesus answers or asks this question of who do you think proved to be the example of good neighbor, God-fearing love that's intrinsic to the people who belong to the kingdom to come? And look at his final response. He can't even get the man's name out. He said, the one who showed him mercy. You can't even say the Samaritan. The one who showed him mercy. And he said to him, you go and be like him. Now, get back to the Samaritan for a second. When the Samaritan shows up on the scene and he's the example, it's not just a good common Jewish man. This is so radical. This is taking a community and using an example of someone they might despise or reject as the example to follow. And that messes with the man. That's like going to a bunch of people who are very liberal-leaning, and they want to know what's right to do in the community, how to care for people. They say, okay, let me, tell you, let me tell you the story. This is the story. Here it goes. There's a good pastor, okay? There's a good social worker. Yeah, they pass by. Let me tell you about the good Trump supporter on the way to a Trump rally with a MAGA hat. <laughs> or going to a bunch of fundamentalist Christians. And saying, okay, there's a pastor. There's a guy like Billy Graham, Mother Teresa. And yeah, they, they just passed on by. Let me tell you about the good, transgendered, LGBT community member. And you're like, whoa! That is messing with me. Because of how right I think I am. And Jesus is saying, see, that's the point. The people of the kingdom love God, and love their neighbor as themselves. And the question you're asking of who's my neighbor to make sure I know who I can pass by isn't the question the kingdom's asking. The kingdom's asking this. Do you, as someone who belongs to God, have eyes to see a need and then move near? That's the first mark of a good neighbor. A neighbor is someone who sees the need. They all saw the need, remember that? But the first two distance themselves from it. And the good neighbor, the example, 
move near. A neighbor sees the need and then moves near to it. That's an important mark for us to understand. Is not only do we have eyes to see the needs, and man, our community has it, but do we have the hearts and compassion that comes from God to move us near to it? That's the question. The second thing is that a neighbor is a, serves at a cost to themselves. A neighbor is going to serve not at a cost to somebody else, but with their own clothes, their own oil, their own wine, their own resources, their own money. It costs the man something to meet the need. Most needs do. And are we willing to give of our resources, whether it be our time, like days spent with someone, future days, to care for the person? But they, they see this need and they give of their own resources. It impinges their schedules. It impinges their bank accounts. It impinges them. Now, here's the thing. God is building a community of good neighbors. That's what he's building. And Paul is so impressed by the communities often found in the New Testament because they're living this out. When Paul wrote to the Colossae church, he said this. We always thank God for the, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus, beautiful. That's the orientation around God and loving God with your whole being. We see that faith. And of the love that you have for all the saints within the community. Not just the easy ones. Not just the easy to love friends that love you back. But your love for all the saints. Those who are really needy. Those who are really annoying. Those who are just like Thomas. You love them all. And it says, because they love all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Like, you know what God has in store for you. And the resources we have right now, the time we have right now, it's like, man, I'm, I'll, I'll leverage that because I know what Christ has purchased for me. I have no reserve of giving for this because I know what Christ has purchased for me. Because of what I know about the kingdom, I'm happy to live it in principle here and now. And there are so many ways that you all do this. I'm, I, I'm so blessed by the families here at Calvary that continually do this. Real quick story. I'm already late on this because I got to get, get us all out to the lobby. But listen to this. There are so many stories just like this of recognizing who God is and from that flowing neighbor kind of love. There's a good friend of mine. She continually goes to one of the shelters in Boulder, picking up anyone who's interested in going to church. And one Sunday recently, she went and picked up this gal who was from the Middle East as a refugee seeking a safe harbor. And here she has found herself in a domestic violence shelter, being asked if she would like to attend a Christian church as a Muslim woman with her children. And she says yes. And just making herself available, she picks her up and brings her to Calvary. And here at Calvary, she comes to know Christ. And knowing Christ, she's part of the community and a women's Bible study. And the gals ask her, what's going on in your life? And she says, this is my predicament. Well, we got to do something. We got to get you connected with some good immigration lawyers. And they connected with good immigration lawyers. And they got to get her out of the shelter. And so a men of action team comes and actually moves her out and finds affordable housing for her to move into and gets her all settled with her children. And then people learn about, well, she is going to have serious legal fees. And an anonymous donor at Calvary says, I'd love to pay for any legal fee that she has. 
You just let me know, and I'll write the check. And so all the legal fees come in, and they're all paid for. And then, this is what happens a couple weeks ago. A couple weeks ago, the lawyer calls the woman and says, I have been an immigration lawyer for years. I have never seen a case go through this fast. Here are your papers, and granted you asylum. And she says to her lawyer, oh, my church family's been praying for me. And then the community that she's connected to celebrates her asylum. And now that she has been granted freedom inside the United States, has come to know Christ, belongs to a community, they're helping her to actively seek employment. And this is just the small pieces of all the body working together, giving of themselves for the sake of a neighbor. Those that God brings into our sphere of influence. So here at the Expo, this is what we're doing. They're saying, okay, there are needs within our church and there are needs without of our church in our community. And there are needs to say, hey, we're starting three services and can you be here at eight o'clock and serve kids and build them up and minister to them? Can you invest in the lives of students that they would know that God is calling them to these things here so that when they're scattered, they're ministers and messengers of reconciliation. Well, I can't get up at 7.45 and be here, be on the ground with kids. What if one of those things spits up on me? Yeah, I know. There are so many opportunities of, of serving in life groups and base camps, opportunities to serve in women's ministries and men's ministries, opportunities to serve in missions and outreach, all these opportunities out there. And we're going to host the expo for two weeks, and this is what I'm asking you to do, is grab the little booklet you brought out here, or you got this morning, and head out to the lobby. Don't get your kids quite yet, although you should get them soon. I'm, I'm a little late. And just go out there and say, God, give me eyes to see. I want to recognize a need in my church family in my community. And then unlike those who would move away, Lord, would you convince me where it is that you're calling me to move near? Give me eyes to see a need, and then give me the heart of compassion to move near. We want every single person at Calvary to fill out this tear-off, to fill out the serve side or the connect side, and let us know maybe where you're already serving, or let us know where you're already connected. And you can drop this off at any table at the expo, and we'll get all that information to the right people. But would you go out, read through here, take a look at some of the tables, fill this out. And if there's an opportunity that stirs in your heart, this week you just drop it off. But perhaps you need to go home and pray about it. Look at your own schedule. What are you going to adjust so that you would be able to respond to a need and move near?